0: Welcome if you're just uh, coming back to find your seat. Going to get cracking. Time is uh, a little bit short. Um, have you ever noticed that most of the exhortations, most of the commands in the New Testament are addressed to communities, to churches, uh, rather than to individuals? Most of the exhortations in the New Testament are plural. ...and not singular. And so, for example, when it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit... ...it means, be a Spirit-filled church. More than it means, be a Spirit-filled person. And now, why is this important? Well, imagine you've got this um, lovely big plate of chips in front of you... ...just out of the fryer. All nice and crunchy on the outside, golden, all nice and fluffy on the inside... Uh, all they need is a little bit of salt. Now, what difference do you think one grain of salt sprinkled on that plate of chips is going to make to the taste? What about a good sprinkle for a few seconds out of the salt cellar? See, Christian loners who do their own thing in isolation, they're like a single grain of salt on your chips, it's ineffective. Uh, it's not God's plan for us to live our faith alone. He puts us in families of fellow believers. This is really important. Whenever a friend of mine visits another church, I always like to ask him or her, how did you find it when you went to this church, when you visited on holiday or something? And what I mean by that, how did you find it, is not what was the building like. Don't care about that. I don't ask uh, how many people were present or was the coffee okay or which songs did they sing? I'm not really interested in that so much. What I'm interested in is what I call the spiritual temperature of the church. In other words, was the atmosphere there full of faith and the Holy Spirit or was it, uh, was it all a bit sort of religious and otherworldly? otherworldly? Was the Bible teaching sound and substantial, or was it just motivational waffle? Was the worship Christ-exalting and passionate, or was it me-focused and shallow? Was the presence of God there in this church, or did it just feel like a club? Was it outward-looking and welcoming to you, or was it all a bit cliquey and no one said hello? And what do you think visitors would tell their friends about a visit to kings if they were to come here? And I say all this by way of introduction because our passage of scripture today from Colossians chapter 1 was written to a church, obviously, and not an individual. And it's all about these kinds of issues. What is the spiritual temperature of the church? It's about the personality of the church in Colossae and the impact it was having on its town, Colossae, and its wider region. So let's read together what it says. And as always, before we do, as always with Paul, it's very condensed. It's very tightly packed with quite long sentences. And so you have to really switch on and focus with Paul. So let's engage now. Colossians 1 verse 3. We always... Thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel That has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So help us, Lord, as we look at this passage now to really glean from it and mine its amazing riches. Amen. Well, as far as we know, as Michael mentioned last week, Paul never visited Colossae. At the nearest he got to it was when he planted a church in Ephesus, which was about 120 miles downriver. But he knew about this church The Colossian church, because one of his Ephesian converts, a man called Epaphras, later took the gospel from Ephesus to his hometown of Colossae. And in all likelihood, the gospel spread from there in Colossae into subsequent church plants to the nearby towns of Hierapolis and Laodicea. But I want you to notice this remarkable thing. See, Paul never went anywhere near this church. And yet you can say in verse 4, we've heard of your faith and your love. And in fact, three times in this quite short passage, Paul says, we've heard all about you. Or someone told us about you. So I take from that that this must have been a church with influence. There was something about what God was doing in this church that was noteworthy and it became newsworthy in the wider region. This church was talked about hundreds of miles away. I want to know, what was it about that little community, that little church that so impacted its wider region? And in verse 6, I think we get the answer. Paul says in verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you. And this is the story of A.D. history, from the resurrection to today, in fact. Let me encourage you about how the gospel has multiplied all over the globe in the last just 100 years, okay? According to research published about 10 years ago, over the last century, the number of people calling themselves Christians in China has gone from 2 million to 67 million. In the Philippines, it's gone from 8 million to 87 million. And in sub-Saharan Africa it's gone up from 9 million, to wait for this, wait for this, 516 million. And that's the gospel growing and bearing fruit, isn't it? And in all these places and more the gospel is still bearing fruit. It is still growing. And as the global as in the global church, one of the hallmarks of the local church Where God is at work, one of the ways you can see that God is at work is that there is growth there. There is fruitfulness within the congregation. In my experience, the harder and more passionately a church prays, the more vigorously it grows. That's what I've seen throughout my 40-odd years of being a Christian. And in fact, Paul repeats this expression about fruit and growth in verse 10 because he prays for more of it there. Uh, He says this in verse 10, we continually ask God, he says, that you may please the Lord in every way, bearing fruit, there it is, in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit and growing, bearing fruit and growing. God's desire for you and for me is that we advance in our faith and we produce a spiritual crop in such a way that people all around Notice there's something going on here. So let me ask you a direct question. Are you growing in your Christian faith? Not 10 years ago. Not when you became a new Christian. I mean this year, 2022. Are you growing this year in your Christian faith? Do you have a growing appetite now for God's presence Are you more able to forgive people who've wronged you as the Lord forgave you? Are you further on in God, do you think, than you were this time last year? Are you asking God for more love for the loveless, more authority in your faith and prayer, more victorious joy in seasons of pain and sorrow? See, growth and fruitfulness on an individual level are indisputable evidence of spiritual health. And by contrast, spiritual stagnation and unproductiveness are indications that something is wrong and needs fixing, it needs fixing fast. So, what is the secret of spiritual growth? and abundant fruitfulness in the christian life is there a kind of holy spirit baby bio or compost that really uh, promotes good spiritual health and verses 5 to 7 say that there is it says here verses 5 to 6 7 sorry that when the gospel really makes its mark on a gathering of christians they in turn begin to make an impression on their community. It's talking about the gospel of grace here. The gospel, the Bible tells us, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is a magnificent story about how God has loved you, predestined you, chosen you, called you, given you new birth, justified you, and forgiven you, and planted you in his family, the church. It's through the gospel that God gives you the obedience of faith. And as long as you keep holding on to that faith, as long as you live, the gospel guarantees that God will unquestionably bring you to eternal joy in his glorious presence. Your security as a believer is not dangling precariously over a precipice by a thread. It says here in verse 5 that it's stored up in heaven for you. So your eternal destination is dependent upon God's consistency, not on yours, not on mine. So whenever you find yourself wavering in your faith, remember that God is faithful. That's the gospel. No wonder it means good news. It's amazing, isn't it? You didn't initiate it. You didn't um, start it. You cannot add to it. It is complete. It is unimprovable. You can only accept it by faith or reject it. And so what was it about these Colossians' uh, collective response to the gospel that meant they were growing and bearing fruit to such an extent that people heard about it Hundreds of miles away. Well, if you read verses five to seven carefully, you'll notice that they reveal a sequence. They reveal a progression. And watch closely now. Verses five and six this is step one. It says, You heard the message of the gospel, the word of the gospel. In other words, somebody, probably Epaphras and his church planting team, somebody communicated the good news about Jesus to you, your ears tuned in and it rang true, and you became interested. That's wonderful. But hearing the gospel, it's a great start, but it's only a start. It's not enough in itself to just hear the gospel. I mean, I have heard all about pulsars and quasars and black holes and phantom energy and dark matter. I've heard all about these things. I know they exist in space. I know I've been told they're actually fundamental to the structure of the universe, but I don't really understand at all what they are. If you ask me what are pulsars and quasars and black holes, I'll just tell you I don't know. I know they're there, but I don't know what they are. And I wonder if some of us here today are at that sort of first stage with respect to the gospel. They've heard it, we kind of like the sound of it, but we've never really yet understood it. But a little bit further on in verse 6, Paul says to these Colossians about the gospel, and this is step two now, you truly understood it. Highlighted there in bold. You truly understood it. That is to say, the message of the gospel to you not only sounded attractive, it did, but more than that, there was a kind of light bulb moment for you. You put the pieces together about this wonderful thing, the gospel, and it made all kinds of sense to you when you did. And there were spiritual realities about the seriousness of sin and the sweetness of salvation it came into focus for you, and you said, ah, This is wonderful. This is amazing. And this is, incidentally, why we at Kings work so hard on communicating the Bible. It's really important to us. 2 Timothy 4 says this. Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching, for the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. We take that exhortation really seriously here. And it's why we, we don't and never will settle for f- a five-minute thought for the day on the back of an envelope. Uh, or you won't get a rambling, wittering on about some strange dream I had on Wednesday night as the sermon's slot either. We preach God's word. and That's why we also encourage everybody here, everybody bar none, to be in some kind of midweek group like leadership training or a life group or the Tuesday morning Bible study or Alpha or a home group, something like that. It's really good for us spiritually, to do that. We passionately want to be a community of disciples here who are lifelong learners, always learning more, always looking to understand more about our faith. So understanding. But there's actually more than understanding. Understanding the gospel is not quite enough either. right? See, I understand how planes fly. I read it in books? At least in theory, apparently, it's just physics and aerodynamics. As long as thrust is greater than drag, producing lift, which is greater than weight, a plane will inevitably get off the ground and stay in the sky. Now, It may seem improbable when you look at a 265-tonne jumbo jet sitting on the tarmac, but it is, in fact, a mathematical certainty. It will fly if those conditions exist. I can understand that. I can even marvel at it. But I've never actually learned to fly a plane. So if you put me in the cockpit of a Boeing 747, this is what you're going to hear over the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, Welcome on board. We are going absolutely nowhere today. (laughs) Okay. So in verse 7... We go beyond hearing and even beyond truly understanding fundamental. Though those two things are, it says, step three, in verse seven, you learned it. You learned it. Paul's talking about life-related Bible training, not theoretical theology. The sound doctrine has morphed into ingrained personal experience. It actually, the word of God begins to shape the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. We learned it. It's part of us. And that is where these believers in this church were. They first heard, then they truly understood, and finally they'd learned, they'd really grasped the gospel of grace. So where do you think you are in that spectrum there? The truth about you, God's eternal plan for your life. Are you on step one? Have you heard it and just begun to tune in? Is that where you are today? Or do you think you've progressed to step two? Do you really understand it now? Or do you think you've made it to step three yet? Have you properly learned, properly grasped the gospel? So it's an integral part of you and it really affects what you do and who you are, the decisions you make, your priorities, everything. So look at the difference between step one and step two. The difference between step one and step two is you go from hearing stuff to knowing stuff. Right? And the difference between step two and step three is you go from knowing stuff to doing stuff. Right? As Chris Vallaton from Bethel Church in Reading, California says, the difference between people who do things and people who don't is that people who do things, do things. I really like that quote. <laughs> do, they actually do things, right? Now, I mentioned Epaphras earlier, this man who first took the gospel from Ephesus to Colossae, planted a church there. At the time Paul wrote this letter he was in prison. We don't know where he was in prison, maybe Rome, maybe Ephesus, maybe um, Caesarea, we don't really know, but he was in prison. And Epaphras was visiting him, bringing him practical help and support. In other words, Epaphras was a man who did things, planted churches, visited prisoners. This is how the early church flourished, in fact. Churches Uh, sent out leaders, they sent out teams to plant churches and to help churches, to resource them. They were people of action who were growing and bearing fruit where they went. And that's why, as Michael said earlier, we're sending out this team to Brasov in Romania uh, Tuesday week. See, Kings, we here at Kings are so blessed with gospel and mercy-shaped DNA which hopefully multiplies whenever we spread it around. And what God has so graciously and wonderfully done amongst us here at Kings, it's just too precious, brothers and sisters, to keep it to ourselves. And whenever we give it away, God pours even more back in. That's God's economy. It's marvellous. Jesus said, give, you give, and it will be given back to you with added bonus and a blessing. That's the John Lambert Free Translation. But our aim here at Kings is that everybody here, everyone but everyone, hears, understands, and learns the gospel of grace so we're all growing and bearing fruit. Amen? Right, we know that the devil wants nothing more than for us to sit comfortably, get some popcorn, and enjoy the show. But that is not... The sort of church Jesus is building. He's building a church that is passionate about becoming more like him in his character and ministering more like him in his anointed power. That's the church that Jesus is building. That's the agenda we're on. There are few things in life that are more beneficial than knowing about God. I love knowing about God. I like reading books of theology. Bedtime reading for me, that's very pleasurable. But God doesn't want us just to know about him, profitable as it is. As many of you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. It's translated for us into English and other languages. And in Greek, the word gnosis, you pronounce the G at the beginning, gnosis, means knowledge. It, re- it refers to the kind of knowledge that we acquire from experience. Okay, so if I wear a pair of trousers that causes everyone to point and stare and laugh and fall about giggling, I know, Gnosis, not to wear them again. It's knowledge based on experience. Are you with me? Now, Gnosis is the root of words that we use in English all the time. Diagnosis means I know what is wrong with you. Medically, prognosis means I know the likely outcome of the treatment you're going to be getting. And agnostic also comes from gnosis, it means I don't know if there is a God or not. But every now and again in the New Testament, we get another word related to it, which is epignosis. It's got EPI in front of it, which also translates here as knowledge. But it is actually subtly different. And you usually find this word, epignosis, when it's talking about Christians knowing God. And it literally means, epi means over, it literally means over knowledge. It's a kind of turbocharged knowing about stuff, it means really knowing. And it's saying here that it's not what we know that brings spiritual growth and fruitfulness. It's who we know. One of the places we find this word epignosis, in fact, we find it twice in two verses, is right here in verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read them again. It says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge, epignosis, of his will. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge, epignosis of God. God wants you to really know his will for you. His calling on your life. He wants you to really know him. So I'm going to end with the oratory of a gravel-voiced African-American preacher and civil rights activist called S.M. Lockeridge. Some of you will have heard this. It's amazing. He once came up with this magnificent word picture of Jesus, and he kept challenging his audience as he described his magnificence. He kept challenging them, do you know him? Do you know him, really know him? And I wish I could do his voice because it's pine tingling when you listen to it, but I'm no actor, I'm afraid. But this is what he said, and let his words be a challenge to us as well about knowing Jesus. He said, my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of Jews. He's the king of the Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of of lords, But do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, and he's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He is preeminent. But I wonder, do you know him today? He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one who is able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's, he's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He forgives sinners He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. But do you know him? Well, my king is the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He is the prince of princes. He is the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. Do you know my king today? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says this. I wish I could describe him to you. I'm trying to tell you that the heart. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. But do you know my king today? He always has been, and he always will be. He'll have no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him. There'll be a nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. Should we stand to pray? Thank you, Lord. What a God you are. Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is the good news about you. I just ask you all to bow your head. may not be your practice in prayer, but I'll tell you why in a minute. If you feel convicted today by God that you've only heard the gospel, but you want to really understand it more. Or if you think you've understood it, being a Christian a while, you want to truly learn it. To know Jesus better today. And to make that a commitment that this year you're going to make, in what's remaining of it, more progress. To grow and bear fruit in your Christian life. Just lift your head towards heaven now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just keep your eyes closed. No one's looking at you. Father, I just thank you for this decision that's been made today. Lord, we long to bear fruit and to grow, like this Colossian church did, that the work you're doing amongst us here will be heard of and talked about hundreds of miles away. Not for our glory, for yours alone, Lord. Do a work in us. We pray, come Holy Spirit, let's minister to each one of us now. Thank you, Lord.